welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shearer, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. On this week's episode, we're covering the life and achievements of John Montague, the fourth Earl of Sandwich. Now you may be thinking to yourself, hey, is this the guy who invented the sandwich? And you would be absolutely correct. Or, at the very least, this is the guy whose sandwiches are named after. Yes, there will be an entire section of this show devoted to just talking about Montague's history with creating the sandwich as well as where he got the idea in the past over that topic. However, Earl Montague actually had a lot more going on in his life than just deciding to put meat between two pieces of bread. For instance, he was the head of the British Royal Navy on three separate occasions, one of those times coinciding with the American Revolutionary War. He actually held a bunch of different positions within the British government throughout the mid to late 18th century. And despite all that, the lasting legacy of Earl Montague, at least the legacy as told by his political rivals, is that he was incredibly incompetent. In all honesty, he kind of comes off as like the most standard of standard British nobles of the late 18th century. But that by no mean makes him boring. In fact, in my opinion, that makes him pretty dang interesting. It's just going to be my job to help you see that. So, without further ado, let's begin the story. We're going back in time to the United Kingdom in the latter half of the 18th century in My Navy for a Sandwich. Now, I'm sure that you might want the history of the sandwich here in the background history lesson, but no, that's for later. Instead, we're going to learn about the history of the British Royal Navy. The British Navy was once known as the greatest navy in the entire world. As Britain is an island, obviously its citizens have used ships for millennia. However, we're mostly talking about England here, meaning after the Angles, Saxons, and other Germanic tribes arrived to settle the island and they also arrived by boat. But even then, we don't see much in the way of a massive naval force, especially considering England was divided into smaller kingdoms up until the 10th century CE. This particularly didn't help with the Viking raids led on the island for a few centuries. When England finally did unite, the first major naval battles it fought were against Scotland. After these wars, we first see Scotland working alongside England in a naval capacity. The naval forces of England saw a very abrupt shift in tone when the nation was briefly conquered by Denmark, and then just as quickly fell off in power just in time for the island to be invaded by the Normans, Norse-descended people from France, in 1066. William the Conqueror's conquest of England continued to see a decline in naval power despite the fact that the Normans had a relatively decent navy. The forces were once again built up over the years until they were a viable force to use in things like the Crusades out in the Eastern Mediterranean. The next major development within the English Navy wouldn't come until the 15th century when the king combined all the former admiralties, aka leaders of regional divisions of the English Navy. They were all combined under the command of the First Admiralty, later called the First Lord of the Admiralty. Later that century, King Henry VII, the first King of House Tudor, decided to really invest in an English navy. He started commissioning for larger ships and many docks in which to store them. In fact, in 1495 he had a dry dock built in the city of Portsmouth, and that continues to be operated as the oldest dry dock in the world. 
In the 1540s, King Henry VIII, the guy who was very divorced with many wives, decided to create a standing English navy, which he referred to as the Navy Royal. His daughter, Queen Elizabeth I, would really ramp up England's navy by deciding to go to war with Spain. At this point in history, the Spanish Armada was the greatest navy in Europe, if not the world. The Spanish Armada significantly dwarfed the navy of England. However, Elizabeth and England had a secret naval weapon. Pirates. Okay, so they were privateers, not actual pirates. The most famous among these privateers was Francis Drake. Though they did not end up completely eclipsing Spain during the ensuing Anglo-Spanish War, England's navy proved it was capable of competing with the best. In 1603, King James VI of Scotland was also crowned as King James I of England, thus bringing the two nations together under the rule of one man, though we're not quite at the United Kingdom yet. This also meant that the Royal Navy of England and the Royal Scots Navy, though not fully combined, were technically more of a cohesive unit than they were before. And this was not actually all that great. The Navy suffered greatly under King James, allowing England to be consistently attacked by pirates from Northern Africa. His successor slowly undid the damage by King James until the combined naval forces were actually useful once more. Then, in 1707, Scotland and England formally combined into the United Kingdom of Great Britain. Wars with both France and Spain would force the UK, along with the rest of the naval powers of Europe, to drastically ramp up the game in terms of high sea tactics. Ships remained pretty much the same as they had always been for the past couple centuries, but the people sailing them were very different. Over the following century, England would gain recognition for its naval victories. This would all culminate in the early 1800s when England came out on top in the Napoleonic Wars, claiming the title of greatest navy in the world. However, that's a bit past where we're at. In fact, we're not here to look at a moment of great triumph for the English navy. Though most people in the United States probably learn about the American Revolution in terms of a battle mostly fought on land, there was also a pretty major naval component to the war too. And, well, that part didn't particularly go over great for the UK. And it's generally considered to be at the fault of one particular sandwich-eating earl. John Montague was born in 1718 to Edward Montague, the Viscount Hitchingbrook, an heir to the earldom of Sandwich, and his wife Elizabeth. Both were incredibly ingrained within the system of British nobility. The Earldom of Sandwich, named after the town of Sandwich and the county of Kent, was created for John's great-great-grandfather, also named Edward Montague. John's grandfather, yet another Edward Montague, was currently seated as the third Earl of Sandwich. You'll never guess what his father's name was. Surprise, it was a fourth Edward Montague. When John was only four years old, his father passed away, meaning that young John was now set to inherit the Earldom of Sandwich. As heir, he was given the title Viscount Hitchingbrook. His mother remarried and basically ceased all contact with her son. Presumably, John was sent to live with his grandparents. Well, six years after John became Viscount Hitchingbrook, Edward Montague, third Earl of Sandwich, passed away. At just 10 years old, John was now the 4th Earl of Sandwich. 
but again, he was 10, so that didn't really amount to a whole lot. Besides, he was Earl of Sandwich, not a prince. He went on to attend Eton College and Trinity College before embarking on the Grand Tour. What was the Grand Tour? It was essentially a capstone for a young nobleman's education that had its heyday between the 17th and 19th centuries, with its absolute peak during the Enlightenment in the 1700s. It was mostly a thing for young Englishmen, but young men in their 20s from other northern European nations like Germany, the Netherlands, Denmark, and France would also participate. If you started in the UK, you would cross the English Channel into France and make your way to Paris accompanied by some sort of tutor who would be your traveling companion. There you would meet up with a bunch of like-minded gentlemen to learn all about French culture, taking classes in topics like dancing and fencing. French was the language of Europe at this time, and French manners were thought to be the most useful when conducting yourself in front of other nobles. From there, you would travel southeast to Italy. You had two choices for how to do this, land or sea. By land, you would cross over the Alps into northern Italy or stop by Geneva in Switzerland. If you wanted to take a boat, you'd travel south to Marseille and take a ship to Genoa. In Italy, a young man would probably visit three cities, Florence, Venice, and Rome. For most people taking the Grand Tour, Rome was the final stop before heading back home. Florence was, as it still is today, a center for artistic study. You had all that wonderful Renaissance artwork to enjoy, like the works of da Vinci and Michelangelo. After admiring art, you'd go to Venice, which was your party stop. Listen, I personally really love the city of Florence and Renaissance art, but I'm sure it would have been boring for an 18th century nobleman. So he needed to get his party on at the annual Carnavale Festival. In Venice, you would also have to commission an artist for some sort of souvenir to take home to flaunt your great adventure. Afterwards, you would finally make your way to Rome. The appeal of Rome was that it was both incredible for its ancient and modern wonders. You had the ancient ruins to marvel at, as well as the fantastic modern buildings and artwork following the Baroque movement. Finally, you'd turn around and go home with all that worldly knowledge. In the later years, some people also went on trips to Sicily and Greece. In my opinion, the Grand Tour was basically travel for travel's sake and one of the bougiest things you could ever do. Would I absolutely jump at the offer to take it? Yeah, of course, but it was also an incredible sign of wealth at the time. And besides, how much art appreciation and worldly knowledge are you actually going to take in during this time? Maybe that's just my low opinion of historical nobility talking, though. Montague took the Grand Tour even further than most people. He added on that extra leg to Greece, but also continued on to Istanbul and even further south to Egypt. These three areas were all firmly within the borders of the Ottoman Empire during this time, meaning it was quite a different culture from that of England. I'd love to say that Montague really took to heart the possible lessons he learned from traveling throughout the largest Muslim nation of the time. I mean, maybe he really did become more worldly. Unfortunately, what we actually know is that he just started up a bunch of Orientalism clubs, which was essentially the modern-day equivalent of starting an anime club at your university. He would also take another major lesson from this time out east, but we'll discuss that later. For now, Sandwich had completed his grand tour and was returned to England. 
As a young man in his early 20s, it was time for Montague to enter the turbulent world of British politics. As the Earl of Sandwich, Montague was able to immediately take a spot in the House of Lords within the British Parliament in 1739. The two major parties within Parliament at this time were the Conservative Party, more commonly known as the Tories, and the Whigs. That's Whig spelled W-H-I-G. The Whigs were the more liberal party of the time, but their main running point was usually their anti-Catholic views. However, there was also internal strife within the Whig party at the time, with the more traditional Whig party following the views of Prime Minister Robert Walpole. In opposition to Walpole were the self-declared Patriot Whigs. While the Whig party was already fairly Britain first, the Patriot Whigs were very much against any sort of policy or aid, especially those thought of by Walpole's government. Montague would join the Patriot Whigs as a follower of John Russell, the Duke of Bedford. Sandwich and Bedford became very good friends as both were wealthy noblemen with a strong interest in the sport of cricket. It's said that, despite a lack of natural talent and persuasive speech, Sandwich's ability to lay out an argument clearly gained him great acclaim within Parliament. In 1744, Bedford was chosen as the first Lord of the Admiralty under the new Prime Minister, Henry Pelham. As one of Bedford's closest allies, Sandwich was chosen to essentially be his deputy within the Navy. Bedford seemingly didn't really care much about the position, instead choosing to spend many of his days back home at his estate. This meant that the day-to-day -day operations of administration within the Royal Navy fell on Montague's shoulders. The next year, Montague joined the British army against the Jacobite Revolution. The Jacobites were a British group whose aims were to sit James Stuart on the throne as King of England instead of his sister Mary, who had been crowned as Queen following the deposition of her father, King James II. The Jacobites had started up their rebellion in 1745 due to most of the British army being on continental Europe, fighting alongside Austria due to that nation's own succession crisis. Sandwich served under Bedford in the army, where he almost died during the revolution though this was due to illness and not any sort of injury. Not much happened on Sandwich's part. The revolution was put down and Montague returned to the Admiralty, though technically he would remain in the army for the rest of his life, even going so far as to rise to the rank of general despite not seeing any more time on active duty. In 1746, Sandwich was chosen as the representative for Britain at the Congress of Breda, this was a meeting between the UK and France to discuss peace talks for the War of Austrian Succession. Funnily enough, every other nation had more or less reached some semblance of peace by this point, Austria included, so the War of Austrian Succession was actually just being fought between France and Britain. Sandwich made heavy use of the British Secret Service during this time to intercept French correspondences. Despite Britain not ending up with all of its desired goals, Sandwich was applauded for his main achievement of delaying the peace talks for as long as possible. His popularity rose among the other influential members of the Whig party, which quickly granted him a promotion in 1748 as First Lord of the Admiralty. Sandwich's first stint as the First Lord of the Admiralty was mostly uneventful. 
In fact, his greatest contribution to the Royal Navy so far had come to pass when he was still Bedford's deputy. This was the creation of the Western Squadron, a division of the British Navy that patrolled the waters along the English Channel. The idea wasn't actually Montague's, but he was the one who helped get the idea implemented. The Western Squadron was essentially a permanent fixture that could easily sail south into the Bay of Biscay, the waters west of France and north of Spain, two of England's biggest threats within the European theater. However, Sandwich's tenure as First Lord of the Admiralty was cut short after just three years in the position. Thomas Pelham Hollis, the Duke of Newcastle, was one of Sandwich's main proponents among the Whigs who had helped Montague get the position of First Lord of the Admiralty. However, Newcastle really didn't like Bedford, who at this time was one of the UK's Secretaries of State. Yeah, back then, England divided the Secretary of State role in two, with one Secretary in charge of affairs in Northern Europe and the other in charge of Southern Europe. Bedford was Secretary of State for the Southern Department. Newcastle so despised Bedford, which meant by extension he ended up despising Sandwich, that he eventually got the Prime Minister to dismiss both men from their political positions in 1751. Sandwich then decided that, with his dismissal, he would take a full break from politics and spent about the next dozen years living a peaceful life at his estate. At this time, the UK was deeply entrenched in the Seven Years' War. The Royal Navy was pitted against the French Navy in both Europe and the Americas at this time, so Sandwich did his best to keep his ear to the ground in order to figure out how the branch of military he had run was doing. The Western Squadron proved to be a massive success as Britain was able to set up strategic blockades both around French harbors and within the English Channel. This prevented a devastating invasion from the French forces. In 1763, Sandwich was once more chosen to act as the First Lord of the Admiralty. This time he was serving under the government of Prime Minister John Stewart, who was a conservative. Sandwich came into the position with major plans to restructure the navy. Stewart's only concern, though, was bringing an end to the Seven Years' War, which was still going on at this point. Just a few months later, the Treaty of Paris was signed, bringing an end to the war. And with the end of the war also came an end of Sandwich's very brief second stint as First Lord of the Admiralty. It's unclear how much he was actually able to get done during this time, but given he was in the role for less than a year, it couldn't have been much. Between his second and third runs with the Admiralty, Sandwich served as the Secretary of State for the Northern Department from late 1763 to 1765, Postmaster General from 1768 to 1771, and then very briefly Secretary of State again for just a bit over a month from December 1770 to January 1771. From there, he would move on to his grandest hour, his third run as First Lord of the Admiralty. But before we get there, let's take a look at how his personal life was going during this interim. Earl Sandwich was married to his wife, Dorothy Fane, in 1741. Together, they only had one surviving child, also named John Montague, who would go on to succeed his father as the fifth Earl of Sandwich. Throughout the entirety of their marriage, Dorothy's mental health was in decline. The pair would end up separating in the mid-1750s with Dorothy moving into Windsor Castle. About a decade after that, Dorothy was officially declared de lunatico inquirendo, meaning officially declared insane by a doctor. 
Though the pair were separated, they remained married. After they separated, Sandwich started up an affair with a singer named Martha Ray. It's believed that they had met while he was serving his second run as First Lord of the Admiralty. Together, the pair had around nine children, though only five would go on to survive to adulthood. Martha was said to be very talented in her craft, and Sandwich supplied her with a massive allowance. This allowed his mistress to own her own place when she wasn't staying at his. And despite the fact that Montague was still married, in public he would act as if Martha was his wife, not Dorothy. Sandwich's financial stability plummeted while he was together with Martha. It's perhaps this reason why she started seeing a man named James Hackman, a soldier who she had met through the Earl of Sandwich. It's believed that Martha didn't actually like Hackman, but he was more likely able to provide for her financially while Sandwich was in debt. However, in 1778, Hackman eventually left the army to join the church. His financial situation quickly changed too, and Martha left him. The next year, in April of 1779, Hackman murdered Martha while she was at the Royal Opera House. Hackman, after failing to kill himself a few days later, was arrested and hanged. It's said that Sandwich never got over the grief he felt for Martha's death. The events surrounding Martha's life and murder were eventually adapted into the 1780 book Love and Madness by Herbert Croft. Also, I'd like to point out that the full title of the book is as follows. Love and Madness, a story too true in a series of letters between parties whose names would perhaps be mentioned were they less known or lamented. At some point, a title becomes too long. Moving on to a lighter subject, as mentioned before, Sandwich was particularly interested in the sport of cricket. It's mentioned as far back as 1741 that he played the sport. At one point, he was even captain of the Huntingtonshire County cricket team. At some point, his team was also combined with the team owned and captained by the Earl of Halifax. The combined team played against the team owned and captained by the Duke of Bedford but no amount of cricket captaining or romance gone wrong could prepare Sandwich for the greatest career of his life. Because we're moving into the 1770s, which means that things were really heating up across the ocean in America. Sandwich began his third and final run as First Lord of the Admiralty in 1771. The UK had just come out of the Falkland Crisis of 1770, which saw them almost go to war with Spain. Sandwich spent the first few years attempting to get King George III reinvested in the Navy. He came up with several designs for new ships, as well as a new plan for the naval base at Chatham Dockyard in Kent, which was seemingly becoming obsolete as it was clear naval bases were needed more in the English Channel than on the eastern side of the island. However, none of this would particularly come to pass considering the state of the British world in 1774. The American colonies were acting up, which was not good for the UK. In fact, they were staging a massive revolution. Now, you may not know this, but the American Revolutionary War was not just America versus Britain. It was, in fact, all of Britain's enemies versus Britain. So you had the colonies rebelling, and then you also had France, Spain, and the Netherlands join in order to knock Britain down a peg. Sandwich's rivals urged him to send more ships to North America in order to secure the colonies. 
Montague instead believed that it was best to keep most of the fleet in European waters to prevent an invasion from France. There wasn't really any winning strategy here because the choice was either keep hold of the colonies or stop France in Europe, and the Royal Navy was not large enough to do both of those. Another slightly unfair accusation thrown at Sandwich during this time was his approach to copper sheathing the navy, or his lack thereof. Copper sheathing is a process of covering the whole of a ship in copper plates. This prevents buildup of worms, barnacles, and other sea life that can damage and destroy the whole of a ship. This allowed ships to stay at sea for longer periods. It was a relatively new concept, having first been thought up in the early 1700s but not implemented until the 1750s. By the time the American Revolution rolled around, it was still a new concept, and a very expensive one at that. Sandwich was not too keen on dumping a bunch of money into this new concept when the British Crown needed that money to pay for other aspects of the war. His political enemies would take action themselves and wrote letters to King George in 1779 convincing him to copper sheath a good number of Royal Navy ships. The King agreed to the plan and 51 ships were sheathed within the year. After his third term as First Lord of the Admiralty, Sandwich would take full credit for the plan despite having refused it originally. Things went from bad to worse in the 13 colonies, so Britain had to start focusing elsewhere. Funnily enough, the mainland American colonies weren't actually all that important anymore for Britain. It was the Caribbean colonies that were the real moneymakers with the sugar trading business. The Navy was still fighting in the American Revolution, but it also needed to protect its interests further south as well as back home. Remember, everyone was preparing for France to lead a full-scale invasion into Britain. Sandwich once again was attacked because people believed he wasn't doing enough to protect the English Channel against France and Spain. In hindsight, this wasn't entirely fair because the invasion never happened. All in all, the 1770s weren't a great time for Montague. But really, what was he supposed to do? The entire world had turned on Britain, and he was supposed to be in charge of battles being fought all across the world. There was the United States, the Caribbean, back home in European waters, there was even some fighting out in the Indian Ocean. On top of all that, he was being asked to test out an expensive new tactic that no one had truly gotten to work up until that point. Ironically, the British victories in the Caribbean were thanks in part to the copper sheathing tactics. So finally, in 1782, Sandwich ended his time with the Royal Navy. In fact, he ended his political career altogether. He would spend the next decade in retirement before passing away in 1792. Okay, you're all probably clamoring at this point for the actual reason any other person would talk about the Earl of Sandwich. Where's the food? Where's the bread? Okay, okay, I hear you. Let's talk about it. First and foremost, did John Montague invent the sandwich? No, of course not. People had been eating meat and cheese or other foods in a similar style for thousands of years all over the world. Jewish sources list something similar to a sandwich wrap being eaten over 2,000 years ago. Tacos and similar other foods are almost definitely pre-Columbian. However, he did possibly invent the modern Western world idea of a sandwich, or at least popularized it. We're gonna jump back in Sandwich's timeline. 
Remember how he went on the grand tour and went further east than most people were going at the time? He explored areas of the Ottoman Empire including Greece and Turkey. In those areas, he would have seen the locals eating food wrapped in pitas and naan bread. Food on the go that doesn't require you to sit down with a fork and knife. There's a popular story about Montague's invention of the sandwich that I'll share, but it's possibly not accurate. Sandwich was an avid gambler. It's said that sometimes he would sit at a table playing cards for hours on end. Well, people need to eat after a while. Customarily, you'd probably call for a break so everyone can grab their utensils and eat whatever was on the menu. Sandwich was so obsessed with gambling that he didn't want the game to end. Inspired by what he had seen out east, he asked for some meat between bread that he would be able to eat with one hand while he held his cards in the other. Eventually, his friends started catching on to the idea and would ask their servants or staff at a gambling hall to give them the sandwich special. This was eventually just shortened to a sandwich. According to historian Nicholas A. M. Rogers, aka the only guy who actually seemed to ever want to write a history over the Earl of Sandwich, claims this story is apocryphal. While Sandwich was almost definitely inspired by the culinary culture of the Ottoman Empire, he probably didn't popularize the sandwich while gambling. Instead, Rogers suggests it was the long hours Montague spent at his desk working for the Navy that prompted him to create the modern idea of the sandwich. Nonetheless, kind of setting John Montague aside, it begs the question of what is a sandwich? Because based on Montague's desires, food like gyro or shawarma would be considered a sandwich. So would tacos and burritos. And if you're on the internet for long enough, surely you've heard the age-old question, is a hot dog a sandwich? Well, I think our Earl would have to say yes to that. Ironically though, that means that an open-faced sandwich is, in fact, not a sandwich. I'll be upfront about this and say that I was actually expecting this episode to be a lot shorter than it was. I was like, yeah, the Earl of Sandwich, I'll talk about the Royal Navy for a little bit and then pat it out with sandwich talk. But no, this man clearly lived a fairly full life. His greatest mistakes, at least as far as the Royal Navy are concerned, was that Britain was fighting a multi-front war and he had to make decisions that his political enemies thought were wrong. So he's not the incompetent fool history originally tried to make him. Also, there was quite a bit of info about him I couldn't fit into the main narrative. Like Captain James Cook originally named the Hawaiian Islands after Sandwich before we all decided it was best to keep their native name. He was also a patron of the fine arts, particularly loving what he described as ancient music. Take a guess at how long it took for Montague to consider the song ancient music. 20 years. So as we end today's episode, let's celebrate by grabbing a sandwich, yes hot dogs included, and listening to the ancient hits of our days like Crazy in Love by Beyonce or Bring Me to Life by Evanescence. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and follow the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. Next time, we're going to jump back to Roman history, though not history concerning the city of Rome. It's a period of time I skipped over in the other Julio-Claudian episodes. 
Before he was a dictator, Julius Caesar was a general in Gaul, and his major foe would be the Celtic leader Vercingetorix. I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers. Whoa, whoa, whoa.